invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis 3. Um, uh, today's message is a bit unexpected. I was prepared to move on when I was writing this uh, message to Genesis 6, of which we will do next week, uh, when uh, the Lord laid on my heart uh, one more message that I wanted to, to cover here in this uh, context of this temptation. Of course, we'll talk about it in, in a sense next week as well, but we will be moving on uh, to verse 6. I think that this message kind of fell on my heart because of the many, many times where I have seen a particular tactic, which I'll call a tactic of Satan. Remember last time, of course, last week was Resurrection Sunday, but the week before that we talked about um, the, the, the principles of Satan today manifest in humanism and how those, those principles are still indeed manifest today. And we talked about some of those principles and, and, and what they look like. But there's a tactic which Satan used in the Garden of Eden on Eve and, and by extension, Adam, that arises in a human heart and is deeply harming. And the message that I want to bring today is to bring this idea to light. You see the title of the message, When Love is Twisted into Hate. This happens. It happens quite often. As a pastor, I've seen it happen so many times. And it's devastating to relationships, it's devastating to lives, and it's subversive. It's something which can creep up on a man. They don't even really see it's happening. And then it happens. And at that point, it can be a somewhat difficult road back when a person takes the extensions or the the uh, overtures of love to someone and begins to twist and pervert that relationship and reinterpret the interactions between them and that person to be interactions of, of conflict rather than of, of love. And so Genesis 3, 4, and 5 is, is kind of the inspiration for this. We read in those verses, The serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, that would be the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Satan uh, then continues the deception he has previously sought to draw Eve into by imposing a, a false motive on God's prohibition. Recall uh, how we have talked about this. Satan asked Eve, has God really said you can't have every tree? And she said, no, that's not the right perspective. The right perspective is that we can have every tree but one. And that was, that was good. Good job, Eve. And this is where Satan comes in with this idea. See, because Eve said, and God told us that the day that we touch or eat of this fruit, we shall surely die. And Satan said, that's not true. You shall not surely die. We'll, we'll talk about that lie more in, in a couple of weeks. Instead, God knows that the day you eat of it, you'll, your eyes will be opened. You shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. The day that you eat of that tree, your eyes will be opened. And in this, Satan questions God's motives in the prohibition of the tree, manipulates the perspective of the situation, paints God as withholding something which is fundamentally good for whatever reason God chose to do so, maybe because God doesn't want them to be happy, or maybe because God is afraid 
that man would reach his full potential and he doesn't want man to reach his full potential. Or maybe because God is jealous or whatever it might be. We don't know exactly what may have resonated in Eve's heart or Adam's heart as it relates to this idea, but that's the direction that Satan is pointing in. But there is also something else that he does here, and, and uh, I may be making more of this than it deserves. Maybe it, 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 it should not entitle an entire message. Um, maybe I'm building a bit of a mountain out of a molehill, but, but I don't think so. And the reason why I don't think so is because of the number of people I've seen shipwrecked on these shoals. When love is twisted into hate, that's the title of the sermon. It's probably a bad title. I'm a really bad titler, as many of you know. Oftentimes, the titles that I give to my sermons are somewhat irrelevant um, and uh, nondescriptive. It's one of the reasons why the sermons don't get much play on social media, YouTube and such, um, because when people are looking for something and they go to to search for a topic, my titles never help them uh, find those topics. I don't have catchy titles that an algorithm would pick up or anything of the sort. Uh, And this title isn't going to tickle the algorithms either. But I think it's at least descriptive enough that you can understand a little bit of where we're going with this. When... We're tempted to take the overtures of love that one is expressing and interpret them as hate or as anger or as jealousy or as envy. Where we take those who love us the most and who who want nothing but our best and because we don't like what they have to say, we interpret into them malice. We interpret into them a lack of love. I, I use the word hate here. Rejection of some sort. And so we turn on those who love us the most. And typically that means we turn to people that have ulterior motives because they're saying what we, what, what we want to hear. And in doing so, we find ourselves much worse for it. I want to begin today by dis- defining love. A while ago, I taught in our marriage series and I made a differentiation, if you recall, between biblical marriage and cultural marriage. Marriage defined by the culture that is around us and marriage as the Bible defines it. And in that, I said that the world is going to do what the world is going to do. Unbelievers are going to be unbelievers. It doesn't change God's design. It doesn't change what God has set in place. Uh, but if, uh, un, uh, but, but unbelievers are going to define and redefine and twist and pervert and do whatever they will to marriage. They're going to recategorize it. They're, they're going to twist it. But that can't and does not change what the Bible says, what God has designed. Marriage is a biblical concept. And in it, there's a biblical definition of marriage which is unchanging and unchangeable. So that as we operate in the church, regardless of what the world around us says or thinks or does, we will operate under the expected and loyal recognition of what the Word of God says, right? Trust and obey as we sang this morning, that the Word of God has a design, that we identify that design. It is not our job to determine what the Word of God says. It's our job to, 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 it's not our job to, to set what the Word of God says or to, or to decide what the Word of God says. It's our job to draw out the meaning from what God has intended in His Word and to live by it. And this same idea is reflected in the concept of love. Words which the Bible use 
and that secular, that have a secular meaning as well, can often become conflated. When the Bible uses a word, we cannot simply carry the dictionary definition of a word or the carnal understanding of a word and impose it onto the Bible without getting confused at what the Bible is trying to say. We talk about the word love. If we, can, if we take how culture defines love today and we impose it upon the Bible's understanding or the Bible's teaching of love, we're not going to come to the place that God wants us to come to. The world has an idea of what love is. And depending on who you talk to, this will be different, right? But several generations of people being raised on Disney movies, chick flicks, and sitcoms has created a society which views love primarily through the lens of emotion. Love is something I can fall into. Love is something I can fall out of. Love is rooted in my feelings. It is something undefinable. It's something uncontrollable. It comes and it goes. It blows like the wind. I can't see it. It stays. I don't know how long it'll stay. It goes. I don't know where it'll go. You can't really define it. You can only feel it. And that's how the world kind of regards love. But the Bible doesn't define love that way, does it? Now, such a notion, the notion of this feeling-oriented love, it does strike a chord in the human heart because our heart is prone to be fickle and changeable. Our heart is prone to emotional highs and lows. Our heart is drawn to certain things and we cannot explain why that drawing is there. Your, 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 your heart does have longings and when those longings are fulfilled, there is an emotional satisfaction that comes with said longings being fulfilled. And so we, we resonate to that idea And yet there is a layer that is below that, a foundational layer that the Bible speaks of as it relates to love that has nothing to do with set emotions or as we would call it, our heart in that way. And you all know that the most natural and comprehensive definition of love in the Bible is found in 1 Corinthians 13 where the Bible says this in verses 4 through 7. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. So the word the King James Bible uses here is the word charity rather than love. Naturally, this is not because the translators did not have access to the word love or that the word love was not well used. As a matter of fact, as we walk throughout the New Testament, you'll find that that word love is all over the place. But rather, it's because the King James translators wanted to use uh, the, the whole breadth and width of the English language in order to add expression and nuance to what they were describing or what the Greek text was describing. Greek is a significantly more precise language than English most certainly is, and and even at the time, in in a manner of speaking, was. Um, Back in in 1611, when the King James translators uh, uh, finished their translation, and then 1769 when it was updated, the English language was still significantly more precise than it is now, uh, much less watered down. This happens to every language. Language is watered down over time. Uh, 
languages fail in their precision over time. However, the Greek language was always one of the more precise languages uh, that, that the world has ever seen. And because of that, um, it's very difficult to take a very precise language and carry it into a less precise language with precision, right? And so the King James translators often sought to use the breadth and the width of the English language, use synonymous terms in different ways in order to help bring about a, a broadening of understanding. Uh, we've talked about many times before, this is exactly why the King James Bible uses thee and thou and thine, not just you and your. Because in many languages, the languages have what's called gender. Believe it or not, gender is not a biological concept, historically. Gender is not a philosophical or an ideological concept philosophically. Gender is a lingual term. It's a linguistic term. Gender is something that languages have. And quite typically, most uh, gendered languages have three genders. They have a masculine, they have a feminine, and a neuter. Once again, this has nothing to do with biological sex as it relates to people. It has everything to do with the nature of the way words relate to each other in that language. So many languages are gendered. The Greek language is a gendered language. Uh, many languages are also numbered, right? Uh, that that there are, uh, there's a singular and a plural. The Greek has three different numbers, or did, not by, by the time Koine came around, it was only down to two. But historically, Greek, classical Greek had three. They had the singular, the dual, which means two, and then the plural, which is more than two, three or more. And so we have these genders and we have these languages. And in a number language, in a numbered language, the words distinguish between one person, two person, or two or more, or three, three or more people. Now, the English language can largely accommodate, it, it doesn't accommodate gender, which is fine, it doesn't have to, uh, but it, it does largely accommodate person, right? We have a singular, we have a plural, we can accommodate that. And in the first person and the second person, I mean, excuse me, the first person and the third person, the third person being I, me, my, we, ours, uh, uh, that, that would be um, the, the first person plural, we can accommodate that. In the third person, there's a potential to accommodate that, they, their, but he, him, right? But in the second person, the English does not have a natural singular and plural. In, in English, it's you or your. If I say, would you please take your Bible and turn to, am I talking to you or am I talking to you? In the English, it doesn't really matter. We don't really have that distinction. Well, the King James wanted to reflect that distinction, right? And that's why they use thee, thou, thine. Thee, thou, thine. The King James said, we've got the breadth and the width of the English language, so we're going to use thee, thou, and thine to designate second person singular, talking to one person. And then we'll use you and your and ye to designate plural, talking to multiple peoples. And so that's what they did. So the King James translators often did this, right? They used the breadth and the width of the English language in order to bring more precision to the English language than it even naturally had so that they could get the point across from the Greek to the English in a more accurate way. And we thank God for that because that's extremely helpful for us as we are working through a study of the, of the Bible uh, it allows us to study more in the English without having to rely as much on any knowledge of the Greek, which is a blessing because most of us don't know Greek. 
So uh, we see this idea with charity as well. When we think of the word charity, the word charity has been characteristically known in the English language to be a reaching out toward others to help them, right? A helping hand. Uh, when we talk about charities today, we're typically talking about organizations um, that receive funding in order that they can do good things for other people. And so that's how we think of charity. However, the word charity in our 1 Corinthians 13 context is not talking about just reaching out and doing good things to people, although that is a loving thing to do, but it's speaking of the, the, the deeper essence of the concept of love. It is defining love. So then how does God define love? Verses 4 and 5. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. We'll stop there. Notice the theme of the general characteristics of love as the Bible defines it. This definition of love is completely selfless, isn't it? Defined by a genuine desire unto the best good of another, even at the expense of oneself. I want to envy, but I choose not to because I love another. I want to draw attention to myself, but I choose not to because I love another. I want to have what I want, but I choose to be patient because I love another. I, I could be unkind, but I choose to be kind because I love another. It is the fundamental idea of setting myself aside for others. Now, you are not going to draw that definition of love from anything that culture tells us about love today. Everything that culture tells us about love today is it is a personal thing that is there for my feelings, my benefit, and my best good. And if I'm not having fun, then there's not going to be any love. If things aren't going well for me, then I'm not being loved, nor can I love. But love in the biblical sense is often a expense at the, in the context of expense. It is the idea of me going out and doing something for someone else, pouring into someone else, setting myself aside for someone else. Love is a selfless idea. And already, just in this one verse, in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, the entire carnal narrative of love as an emotion of self crumbles. Love is not an emotion rooted in how you feel. And if it's not an emotion rooted in how I feel... If love is expressed in things like patience and kindness, long-suffering, a refusal to envy others that might have something that I do not, you're never going to feel this way, are you? Especially in the moment. And if love is not a feeling, well then, love is a choice, isn't it? Love is something I deliberately step into. It's not something I fall into. Love is something that I go into with my eyes wide open, understanding that this may not be intrinsically something that I like, but it is something that is good for me. It may not make me feel the best, but it will be the best. And the definition continues. We read verse 5. The verse I really want to focus in on for our purposes, however, is verse 6. Verse 6 says, that charity, love, rejoiceth not in iniquity, 
but rejoiceth in the truth. There are three words that we typically conflate, in the, and, and the Bible actually conflates them too, so it's fine that we do so, uh, for what we call sin. One is the word sin, one is the word transgression, and one is the word iniquity. The idea of sin is, the, the, it's, it's actually an archery term, as you've heard probably many times, which means to miss the mark. It's the idea of you're aiming at a target and you miss the target. That is the fundamental concept of sin. Then you have the idea of transgression, and transgression is a breach of law. It is the idea that there is a line, and I know that I'm not supposed to cross that line, and I cross that line. That is a transgression. It is when there is a standard in place, I know the standard, and I am purposely breaching the standard. Iniquity is the idea of a bending or a twisting. So the concept of that is I have been told to do something, and I bend or I twist what I've been told to justify what I'm doing in light of what is being uh, of, of what I have been told so that uh, mom and dad say, children, would you please go wash the dishes? And then they start to say, well, they told us to wash the dishes, but when they said that, they really meant, and you bend or you twist what mom and dad said in order to get out of doing what you know you ought to do and to, to, to appease your conscience to make you feel as though you've done uh, at least enough anyway. That's iniquity, right? Um, and, and so as we see this idea here that, that love does not rejoice in iniquity, uh, we, can, we can impose that more narrow definition of the bending or the twisting, or we can broaden it to the simple idea of uh, that which is uh, sin, that which is against the character, the nature, the word, and the will of God. But notice here what it says, that love does not rejoice in iniquity. Love rejoices in truth. Love wants what is best for another. Love grieves when another is suffering. Love also grieves when another is not doing right. When there is a bending, a twisting, or a perverting of the way things are supposed to be, and you see someone and they are living in that bent, that twisted, or that perverted sort of a fashion, they see the world through a lens that is incorrect, they are confused, they are, they, they are misguided, and you see that, or they are choosing to do wrong, and you see that, they are transgressing, they are sinning, and as they do so... You say that there is no rejoicing in your heart over that. Rather, you rejoice in the truth. You rejoice when those who you are interacting with walk in truth, and that is love. The sort of de facto, de, de facto motto of Legacy Baptist Church is the truth in love. And this comes from Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 speaks of the purpose of the church and how we are to interact with one another. Beginning in verse 11, Ephesians 4 says this, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. And here's where our motto comes in. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly framed together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So the Bible says that ministers are given to the church in order to help the saints be perfected, not to mean sinlessly perfect, but rather to be completed, to be uh, discipled, that they may do the work of the ministry. 
in order that the church may edify one another itself until Christ returns, that we may build each other up, that we may help one another grow, that the church can be stable. So we help each other grow so that we as a church can be a stable church that's not carried about by every wind of doctrine and by every slight and, and, and the cunning craftiness of men. So as, as there are, are new ideologies and new philosophies that come about and, and the church is not drawn away into the next new thing, we're not drawn away into all the new ideologies and all the new terminologies and all the new things, it doesn't mean that everything new is wrong, but it's only right if it comports with this book. And so we, we find through being perfected by pastors and teachers and evangelists, by, by being brought to completion, we find a stability. And that stability allows us, when the winds of false doctrines and the winds of ideologies blow, to maintain a stable foundation to keep our anchor firmly rooted in truth. And that's what I'm here to do. And then what we're here to do is to keep each other rooted in truth. And then as we're all rooted in truth... The truth in love, we are bound together as a body to where each one of us is supplying a portion of the body's total need, where we are working as, as, as if we were individual joints in a body, and as we each supply our part, we do our part, and we supply our part, we serve the greater body, and we make an increase to the body and to the edifying of itself in love. And so we speak the truth in love because love cannot rejoice in iniquity. Love always rejoices in truth. And that means love tells the truth. And love tells the truth because love wants what is best for another. And the truth is always that best. I am not loving my child when I lie to them. And the degree, the extent to which I take that you know, there are different people that take this in different directions as it relates to, you know, last week we had, uh, we had Resurrection Sunday and um, uh, is, it, is it inherently not loving my child to let them believe that the Easter Bunny is real, um, which of course we, we haven't let our children, we haven't gone down that route with our children, but I, I, I don't think a parent is in too bad of a shape if they pretend that the Easter Bunny is real for a couple of years, right? Uh, I, I think it sets, uh, we, we have personally chosen not to do that because the precedent of the idea that I'm going to lie to my child is something that I, I, I'm, I'm not fundamentally on board with, but th that's, that's not so much what we're talking about, right? What we are talking about is when a person lies to another person, when a parent does lie to a child in the way that a child uh, uh, is, is fundamentally harmful to their ability to relate themselves properly to the world that is around them. That because we're trying to affirm our children and make them feel good about themselves, we tell them that they're doing well when they're not. We tell them that, that, that because they've worked hard, that it doesn't matter whether or not they actually succeed. Well, that's a lie. And that's a lie that's not going to do them any good as they get older. In a culture of participation trophies, where everybody gets a trophy simply for playing, we are lying to them if we tell them that the world exists outside of a meritocracy where you actually have to succeed in order to achieve. We're lying. 
And we say we're doing this out of love for them because we don't want them to feel bad. But what are we actually doing? We're actually crippling them. Right? Love tells the truth. But as I give that example, why is it that we would be tempted to lie to our children and to tell them that they don't need to actually succeed in order to in order to contribute to society, in order to be a functional member of their family, whatever it might be. Why, why, why would we be tempted to do that? Well, because we don't want them to feel bad. We don't want them to feel sad. We don't want them to feel as though they have not measured up. But oftentimes there's something even deeper, isn't there? Well, because I don't want to be the one to tell them the bad news. I don't want them to get angry at me. I don't want to have to deal with the fallout of telling them the truth. I don't want to tell them the truth because that's going to mean complications in my relationship with that person. If I tell them the truth and they get angry at me, then things are going to have to change. Then I'm going to have to deal with that. Then we're going to have to work through that. That's going to be a lot of work. So if I just tell them what they want to hear, then I don't have to go through the emotional taxation of dealing with the emotions of them being disappointed or upset or whatever it might be. And so oftentimes, the actual reason why we don't tell people the truth when they need to hear the truth is because of Selfish reasons, isn't it? Because I don't want to have to go through the emotional taxation of dealing with telling them the truth. Because I don't want to have to go through all of the explanation of telling them the truth. Because I don't want to have to deal with their drama if I tell them the truth. And so I just say, you know, I'm just not going to tell them the truth. And I can do that. And I can even say, I'm not going to tell them because it might hurt their feelings and I care about them too much. But what am I actually doing? I'm actually saving myself the trouble. It's selfish. It's not love. So we have an understanding of biblical love. It's not an emotion rooted in how you feel. It's a choice rooted in how you view and treat someone else. And specifically, a conscious choice to do what is best for someone else regardless of my own self-interest or circumstance. 1 Corinthians 13 is the best formal definition of biblical love, but obviously the best example of biblical love that we find in the Bible is Jesus Christ himself, right? In love, God compelled Christ to the cross. In love, our Savior Jesus Christ gave his life. Not because the idea of dying for the sins of the world romantically stirred Jesus' emotions into such fervor that he developed some sort of... uh, irresistible martyr's complex. Jesus did not get such a romantic, uh, romanticized notion of dying for the world in his mind that he was just excited to go give his life. No, the Garden of Gethsemane tells us quite clearly that was not the case. Jesus did not want to do what he was about to do. Well, if he didn't want to do it, why did he do it anyway? If his emotions were not invested in the idea of dying then why would he do it? Well, because he had chosen to place his love on the world. And in order to love the world into an opportunity to be saved from their sins, Jesus had to die. Every ounce of Jesus' emotional and practical feeling within him said, don't do this. But God's love for this world drove Jesus to the cross. The deepest expression of love in that God gave his only begotten son that through his death we might live. 
And we looked at this not too long ago in our marriage series, again, when husbands were exhorted to love their wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself for it. Biblical love is, and the way I described it in marriage, is joyful sacrifice. It is at its very core selfless in nature and outward in focus. Okay, so we've established love. I want to connect love to relationships now, to interactions with people. In Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, we read this. Hear ye children the instruction of a father, and attend to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine, forsake ye not my law. For I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. He taught me also and said unto me, Let thine heart retain my words, keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, she shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. Exalt her, and she shall promote thee. She shall bring thee to honor when thou dost embrace her. She shall give to thine head an ornament of grace. A crown of glory shall she deliver to thee. Hear, O my son, and receive my sayings, and the years of thy life shall be many. So in Proverbs 4, we find a father, and he's writing to his children. He calls them to regard his instruction, and that because he is giving them good doctrine. He expresses his motivation, saying, he was his own father's son. I was my father's son. My father uh, and my mother loved me. My father loved me, and because they loved me, they taught me in wisdom, and now it's my turn to teach you in wisdom. And this father concludes that his inter, uh, uh, concludes his introduction by telling his son, hear and receive these sayings and the years of thy life shall be many. Now, this is not a biblical promise of long life in the literal idea. It's a proverbial promise of long life that when a man hears and receives the wisdom of those who have gone before, even at the expense of how he feels at the time, he will find in it the tremendous benefit unto life. It does not mean that that man will not be martyred at a young age. It does not mean that there will not be a terrible accident that could happen to him, but it means that all things being equal, this wisdom will help preserve for him life and success. Now, as the introduction of Proverbs then commences, excuse me, the instruction of Proverbs then commences, uh, what we find is that the things that will be shared in Proverbs are not things that every young man tends to receive well. If you were to take from Proverbs 4 on, and and Proverbs 1 through 3 is good too, but that's more introductory type things. But if you were to take Proverbs and you were to read Proverbs, and as young men read Proverbs, they hear things, warnings against all manner of human desires, right? Warnings against material desires, warnings against temptations to lie and to cheat and to steal and to incur debt, uh, 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 exhortations uh, uh, unto temperance, exhortations uh, to curb their sexual desires, things which are difficult, things which are uh, frustrating, hard truths. Which means what we have in Proverbs is we have the record of a father telling his son hard truths. I've talked before, and whenever I talk about a, 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 um, a, a series on raising children, 
One of the things I exhort our parents not to do is to not be afraid of your children. You say, well, no, no parent is afraid of their children. Well, in a physical sense, uh, yes, most parents are not afraid of their children. Every once in a while, there's something weird going on, but most parents are not afraid of their children. However, in a spiritual or an emotional sense, many parents are afraid of their children. They're afraid to tell their children what their children need to hear because they feel as though if they do so, their children are going to get angry at them or going to reject them and going to go off the deep end. And are going to and, and and there is a manner of telling truth which is inappropriate and, and can drive a child away. But we need we need to be careful as parents to not be afraid of our children in that way. And it's not necessarily an easy thing. Because we don't want to upset our children. We don't want to harm them emotionally, and we certainly don't want to put them in a place where we lose our credibility with our children because we have upset them. But here's the thing. When a loving, successful authority instructs those under him, he is doing so because he loves them. This is what a loving and successful authority must do, in fact, and will do. Now, our message is not about authority per se. I think most of you know where I stand on biblical authority. Submission to biblical authority is not conditioned upon whether or not that authority is godly or even making right decisions. We obey our authorities in the Lord and for the Lord's sake, not because our authorities are good people. But when it comes to the reception of wisdom, notice the two adjectives I placed in front of the concept of authority, loving and successful. An authority who has proven their love to you and who has shown in the manner in which they have lived their lives spiritual success. They have proven that they're worth listening to. We talked about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago in our evening in Hebrews where the message was on leaders in the faith. And as Paul exhorted those in, in, in the book of Hebrews to follow those who were their leaders in the faith, he said that the reason why they are to follow them is because these men have proven themselves faithful in the First Timothy 3 way. And he said, because these are faithful men, regard them, follow them. And this is bringing us closer to our theme this morning. But before we find our way back to Genesis 3, I want to walk through the antithesis of these principles. The tendency of the heart of man is to reject this manner of thinking. We humans are deeply emotional creatures, and we have a pretty good sense of self. That's a nice way of saying we're selfish. We're convinced of our own orientation to life. We look at life and we see it in a certain way. And if we're not careful, we say, well, the way I see life is how life obviously is. And so anyone who tells me life is not the way I think it is, is simply wrong. And as a matter of fact, offensive to me, is attacking me, is judging me, is jealous of me, is fill in the blank. We have a tendency to see things this way, to be convinced of our own correctness. It is a rare man indeed who understands just how little he understands. Even many who give lip service to that idea 
You know, those, those pseudo-intellectuals and those philosophers who have read just enough Socrates to know that Socrates was a respectable man because he understood how little he understood. And so now they say they understand how little they understand, but they don't actually understand how little they understand. They're just the armchair philosophers. We all have this tendency to struggle with this. Instead of trusting our own perceptions and determinations and feelings to trust the counsel of those who have gone before us and who, uh, who, who have shown themselves to be loving and successful. We find ourselves living among men and women whom God has given unto us to help us, to guide us. The natural proverbial um, expression of this is fathers. That's the initial biblical basis for wisdom being passed down from generation to generation. Father to son, father to daughter. But we also talk about those who disciple us, mentors, pastors, elders, if we want to call them that in, in, in a biblical concept. We build these relationships, and we do so for any number of reasons. Sometimes those relationships are de facto, like with your father. For many of you children, uh, your pastor is a de facto relationship, right? You don't get to choose where you're going to church. You're going here uh, because mom and dad are going here. And then there's other relationships that uh, we build because of various interactions or maybe by choices. We, uh, we, we look to someone and we say, hey, would you become my mentor? Would, could, could, could you disciple me? Uh, um, would, would you be a... a um, a guide for me. Others uh, just naturally fall into that position. Uh, someone perhaps in, in your, your sphere of influence or an employer or a boss or whatever it might be who has reflected so, uh, some measure of wisdom and there has become some sort of, 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 of a disciple-discipler relationship there. We live in the shadow of historical Guides, those who are, are uh, who history has bubbled up to the top as as lights that shine into the darkness. People who orient us properly to the way things ought to be, who were well expressive in the manner in which they articulated truths, and those truths bore about uh, proper results. And so we we have. Uh, historically, not so much today, but historically we have elevated those people in our culture to be, in a sense, guiding lights, whether that be biblical figures uh, such as Joseph and Paul, or whether they be historical figures, um, uh, men uh, uh, such as Martin Luther to, to one degree or another, or C.S. Lewis to one degree or another, or, or um, in, in secular context we think of men like George Washington or an Abraham Lincoln, uh, men who have reflected something um, that would be the better part of human nature and so we would grab a hold of that and elevate that within our lives as a, a sort of a mentor or a discipleship sort of an idea. We live in the shadow of those who have gone before us, of those who have either directly invested in our lives or historically or culturally invested in our lives. And they have done so, particularly those that are close to us. Let's bring our minds back to that. These people have invested in us. Remember, I'm talking about loving and successful authorities. I'm not talking about the father that beats his child and, and, and goes off and drinks and, and, and doesn't invest at all. I'm not talking about that father. I'm talking about the father who is a loving and successful reflection. They have invested in you because they love you. They have invested in you because they love you. 
Children, your father and mother have invested in you because they love you. You are the living proof of their investment in you. I have invested in you because I love you. The church has invested in you because we love you. But I want to describe a situation to you. You have a decision to make. You have a direction in which to go. You have a path in which to follow. And you find your desires and your feelings are pulling you in one way. And the exhortations of those authorities in your life are calling you the other way. And there's nothing unbiblical about their exhortations. I'm not talking about the father who who, uh, has no relation to the word of God, who doesn't care about his children and who is giving them bad advice uh, that is expressly unbiblical. And you can go to chapter and verse and say, Dad, your advice is unbiblical. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about someone who is, 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 is exhorting you in one direction and their advice is not unbiblical. There's nothing unbiblical about their exhortations. You cannot articulate your disagreement with them in terms of doctrine or anything of the sort, but they are standing strongly between you and something that you want or something that you think. And what can happen, especially if you have people on both sides of the issue, and the way this plays out is often, as we see with, say, the example of Rehoboam in in the scriptures, where the older men are pulling you in one direction, and the people that are your age are pulling you in another direction, and the people that are your age, you relate to them more, and you understand what they're saying better, and the people that are older than you are calling you to a different path, and, and uh, they're saying that you should trust us because of our wisdom, and the young people are saying, well, they just don't know what they're talking about, and you're inclined to, to believe that because that's the season of life you're in. And then you start to look at those authorities, those mentors, that pastor, that father, that discipler, And you begin to change the way you regard them. This person, yeah, they've invested in you in the past. But you start to say, you know, they're giving me this advice and it is not advice I like. They're telling me I'd be foolish to go in this direction. They're telling me that this this, this would be unwise of me. I think they're jealous. I think that they're just trying to hang on to their influence over me and they don't, want, they don't want to lose that over me. I think that they just get their kicks out of telling me what to do and, and this is the first time where I've wanted to do something that they haven't wanted me to do and they don't like that and so they're just trying to get me to do what they want because they want power, they want control. Who do they think they are anyway? And we start to modify the way that we look at this person. Because they're giving you advice that you don't like. They're warning you in the direction which you're going and saying that this might be a problem. They're maybe quite insistent, quite deliberate about the danger of your direction, saying, no, you should not do this. Maybe they're not actually holding you back. Maybe they're not uh, imposing upon you any sort of a consequence. but, But they're saying, you should not do this. Don't go this way. Now, carry this idea back into Genesis 3 with me. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil.
Maybe this is the first time Eve has ever really thought about it. And she looks at that fruit and she says, yeah, you know, that fruit is good. We'll talk about that more last, next week. That fruit is good to eat. There's nothing wrong with it. It's pleasant to the eye. And then here, this serpent tells me that it can make me wise. And maybe she started to rethink the prohibition of her authority. Maybe this God that she had always understood to be good and to care for her and to love her actually does not have her best interest in mind. Sure, her singular experience with God in every fashion and in every experience, her experience with him has been that he has loved her and provided for her and protected her. Her singular experience has been goodness. But here's the thing. She wants this, and he's saying no. And her emotions are true for that thing. And her desire for that thing is valid. And she can't think of any reason why she shouldn't have it, but God won't, doesn't want her to have it. And maybe her perception of him began to change. Maybe God doesn't have her best interest in mind. Maybe God is afraid of her, holding her back from her maximal potential. Maybe the road to fulfillment doesn't need to go through obedience. Maybe she can strike out on her own and get this her own way. Maybe there is a shortcut to happiness and success that God simply isn't telling her about, that God, that, that, that God isn't willing to, to let her take. Christian, this allure is as old as the world itself. And it's something that I've seen again and again, and probably many of you have too, where a person starts to go down a direction and their friends and their family, their pastor, their church, everyone's looking at them and saying, don't do this. And these people who are telling you this have invested years into you. They have borne the marks of their love for you in resources, in time. They've dropped things to come to your aid. They have given you money. They've given you material needs. They have taken time. They've sat with you on the phone. They've laughed with you. They've cried with you. And now they're saying something that you don't like and you become convinced that that love for you is gone. That somehow this person who has always shown so much love for you has woke up one day and just said, you know what, it's time to burn this person's life to the ground. That doesn't make any sense, does it? But how easy is it to be drawn into that? The people whose years of care and investment begin to look like a hindrance to you because they're saying something that is contrary to what you want. Now, let me be clear about where I'm coming from in my own heart on this. And let me also be clear. While there may be people living this way amongst us this morning, I'm preaching to myself, to everyone, and to no one. I'm not targeting anyone. There's no one's, there's no one's face in my mind as I'm preaching this sermon, okay? If you find yourself resonating with these words, it's not because I'm targeting you. 
And the reason why I say that is this, because this message will itself lend itself to this problem. Right? That as pastor gives this message, oh, pastor's just, blah, 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 and all of a sudden I become your enemy. If this, if, 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 if this is resonating with you, talk to the Spirit of God about that. Okay? Because I was literally well on my way to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, when two weeks ago, when I was writing this, and I wrote this two weeks ago, so if it happened, if whatever you're dealing with happened this week, I had already written the sermon, okay? And I was well on my way along another sermon when God said, stop, write this one instead. So, bear with me here. Where is this coming from? This is coming from the place of a pastor who invests his life in the lives of others. And those others are pleased to receive it. They're pleased to take my time and my effort. They're pleased to be heard, sometimes to hear. They're pleased to to take lots of investment Until it's time for me to leverage my investment in their life to make an appeal to them to avoid some danger, some pitfall, or some destruction. And I come up to them and I tell them to avoid some danger, some pitfall, and some destruction. And in the words of Galatians 4.16, I become their enemy because I tell them the truth. And as I've said, I've seen this with children toward their parents. I've seen this with disciples toward their mentors. I've seen this with members toward their church. I've seen it it just strikes closest to me as shepherd to the sheep right now. And when I read Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, I see a man and a woman about to be drawn into a poisonous way of thinking, which many of us have seen before, where a person is walking in a path which is outside of wisdom, but it is a path which roots itself deeply in their hearts for one reason or another. Their desires, their feelings, and their persuasions are all pulling them in this direction. And those who know them the best and those who love them the best are telling them that this is the wrong way. And they carry with them, those people who are telling him this thing, they carry with them the marks of their love for that person. They have invested in him in any number of ways. But when it comes time to listen, that person says, you, are, you don't love me, you are my enemy. They see the advice as antagonistic, as being attacked, as being judged. Perhaps they even begin to see their counselor as the enemy themselves. And they forsake wisdom and they go headlong into error. And though I, as a pastor, have seen this many times, and many in the church have seen this happen to your friends, family, and loved ones many times, it still hurts every time. When the human heart, which Jeremiah 17.9 says is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, convinces a man that his closest friends and family, that those who have borne the marks of their love for him the most, are in fact his enemy because he doesn't like the advice that they are giving, and to that hypothetical man, I ask the same question that I would ask to Adam and Eve if they were here today. What changed? What changed that this person who has always loved and cared for you decided that they were just going to throw a big mon- monkey wrench in all of your plans? As I asked, do you think that they just woke up one day and decided that today was the day where they had built enough trust And enough goodwill in your heart that now they can use that to destroy you? Or do you think that maybe 
yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day before, they expressed their love to you. And on those days, maybe that love to you was expressed in, in material provision. Maybe that love for you was expressed in giving you of their time. Maybe that love for you was expressed in praying for you. Do you think that maybe just maybe today when they're telling you that you're on the wrong path, they're still doing the exact same thing they were doing yesterday and the day before and the day before that? That maybe, just maybe, it is still their love for you that compels them to tell you these things. And think about this as well. We mentioned this already in earlier. If they did not love you, would they really go through all of the trouble of making you angry at them? If I did not care for you, I would not care whether you walked right off that cliff. It would be much easier for me to not make you angry so that you'll keep sitting in these seats and I can, I can keep having a job than it would be for me to go, come up to you and tell you the hard truth. But that wouldn't be love. I have to set myself aside. And in some senses, I have to set my best interests aside to come up to you and to tell you things, don't I? As does a father to their children as does a mentor to their disciples. We have to set our best interests aside oftentimes in order to give you the hard truth. But we do it because we love you. And so they've spoken up. They've warned you. They've reminded you. They've instructed you because they know you and they love you and they are deeply concerned about the path that you are on or the decision you're about to make or... Whatever it might be, that will not redound to your best good. And on that day in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were being tempted to cast away the foundation of the love, the care, and the provision that God had laid for them and instead believe either that everything that God had done, He had done specifically to harm them or to hold them back rather than to bless and sustain them like they had always thought, or that all of the legitimate good things that God had done for them had no bearing on whether or not they should trust God in this one area where God had given them a prohibition. Well, yes, God has been good to me. Yes, he's given me all of those things. And, and I'll acknowledge that that's goodness, but that doesn't mean that he, he's loving me here. And neither option was wisdom on that day. Both were lies. Both were deceits. And Christians, this is no less relevant to the countless times that we see this happen today. Now, a couple of last things here. Not every bit of advice you get from an authority, a mentor, pastor, parent, is necessarily good advice. We're all flawed after all. I'm not telling you that if somebody who has shown love for you gives you advice, that you should, without a doubt, accept that advice and do what they say. Often, if it's a parent, let me just tell you this, children, you don't, you, you know, especially in, in, in your teen years, you don't understand this, but your parent actually does know you better than you know yourself at that point in your life. You really ought to listen, if, especially if they have shown a track record of love and success. But not every 
piece of advice that an authority, a mentor, or whatever it might be, is going to give you will be the right advice. But if their advice has you rethinking the nature of your relationship to them, if, if they come up and they give you that advice in love, and you start, what crops up in your heart is they're jealous, or they're, they're envious, or they don't love me, or um, they, don't, they just don't understand me. Or, and this is another big one, they're trying to to get their, their own good out of the situation and not my good. If, if you find those things cropping up in your heart, you need to stop the decision-making process and first check your heart. Get your heart back in line. Are they telling you something because they know you and love you, which you don't want to hear, but which you absolutely need to hear? Have they actually become their, your enemy because they've told you the truth? Have they put themselves out there into a deeply uncomfortable position and said things which they know will be hard for you to hear because they want to tear you down or because they truly believe that they need to build you up? Even if you don't agree with their advice. And I've had this happen. I've had people come up to me and say, hey, pastor, can I talk with you? And we've gone and we've sat down and they've said, pastor, I'm concerned about you. I'm concerned about your family. I'm concerned about the direction that your, your family's headed. I'm concerned about the decisions that you're making. And we've walked through that and I've listened to that and I've walked away and I've prayed about it and I've talked to my wife about it and, and we've decided they are not correct. We're, we're on the path that we're on and we're okay with that. But if, but, but, but never throughout the course of that process have I ever seen anything but love in the expression of that person for me. They love me. We have a disagreement. They love me. They are concerned about me. And so they are telling me what they believe I need to hear for my best good. And I thank them and I praise God for them and for that. That's okay. I can disagree with them. And by the way, more times than not, when I ha- I've had those conversations, I've walked away and changed something. I've needed to change something. But that is different in both of those scenarios than me walking away saying, well, that person is just jealous of me. That person just wants wants me to, to conform to their way of thinking. That person is just judging me. Maybe so. But if that person has a track record of loving me, then that's the direction that I need to to absorb this from. Even if you don't agree with their advice per se, can you trace the pattern of love and of thought from where they are to where you are and understand that what compelled them to speak to you was for your best good? Can you ask the question, I don't know that I agree with them, but what can I learn from that? Maybe I do need to rethink the whole situation. Maybe I'm going in the wrong direction, or maybe it's just this. Maybe it's, well, I don't think I'm doing anything wrong, but this is how people are perceiving it. I need to change something because there's a testimony problem here. Doesn't mean I'm going to completely change everything, but I need to alter the way people are perceiving the situation because they're not perceiving it in the way it actually is. Thank God for someone who came up to me and told me how they are perceiving it who loved me enough to tell me when there was a problem so that I can get it fixed. Because people who have a history of truly loving you 
the kind of love that we talked about at the beginning of the sermon, 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love, Suffereth long and is kind, envieth not, vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. That selfless kind of love that roots itself in your best good and has done so, maybe for weeks, maybe for months, maybe for years. The kind of love that has been patient and kind, that has not sought to elevate themselves above you. Those types of people don't just wake up one morning and declare that they're going to destroy you today. When they express concern, 99 times out of 100, they're loving you still. And if you're in your heart, you have inklings of resentment or disregard for them. Don't be surprised. It's as old as Adam and Eve. But allow that to be a big red flag in your heart. That something is wrong in you first and foremost. And before you make that big decision, before you go in that direction, you make sure that your heart is right before God and man. You make sure that you can perceive what they are telling you from a, a, a perspective of love. And when you're there and you can perceive what they are saying to you as love and you can assess their advice or their exhortations or their warnings from the perspective of love, You may agree or you may not agree, but until you can perceive what they are doing, not as judgmentalism, not as anger, not as hatred, not as envy, not as jealousy, but as love, then don't move. Get that right and then approach their advice from a place where you can see it in the context of the love that it is. And then make a decision about the thing itself. How many people have been shipwrecked on the shoals of the decisions of life because of their failure to see the love of those who have already proven that love time and again? Instead, they chose to follow the new or the interesting or the self-gratifying path, some dream, some destiny, some determination which they want, but which those who love them and know them the best cry out against and stand in opposition to. And their concerns not only fall upon deaf ears, but those concerns become translated into the hearts of the hearers as an attack or as judgment or as jealousy or as fear when in fact it's only love. Believer, guard your heart against such temptations. Hold those who love you in great esteem for that love. Why? Because there are an awful lot of people in this world that don't have anyone to lovingly tell them the truth. If you have someone who's willing to put their relationship with you at risk in order to tell you something they know that you're not going to want to hear, but they feel you need to hear, even if they're giving you bad advice, you have something special, something rare, something that not everybody gets to have in life. Thank God you're not surrounded by a bunch of yes men that are just going to let you go down the path of destruction and tickle your fancy the whole way because they want something from you. Thank God when there are people that are willing to step out in love and say, you know what, I am going to tell you when I think that there's something wrong here. I am going to point that out to you. I am concerned and it's not going to be comfortable and it's not going to be fun, but I'm going to tell you the truth because I love you. There are people who would give much for the kind of investment that men and women have made in many of you. You have functional parents who have loved you and who have guided you. Don't allow one decision that they're standing in the way of 
to, to, to subvert that relationship. Thank God when there are people who love you enough to voice their concern for you. After all, as a church, we're called to do exactly that, right? We're called to love one another. The truth in love. And if we do come to resent such expressions, it will be worse for us in the end. And such was the case many years ago, where a kernel of doubt was planted into, the, into Eve's heart, questioning whether or not the God who bore the marks of love and care was actually her enemy. Whether this God's expression of prohibition and warning was, in fact, not an expression of love, but an expression of something else. Fear, jealousy, judgmentalism. And it was a foolish idea, but it was also deeply alluring to the human heart. A heart which desires to go in its own way. One which led to some of the most consequentially destructive decisions in the history of mankind. But by God's grace, it doesn't have to in our own hearts. When love is twisted into hate, guard your heart, Christian, against this propensity. And if you see it in your own heart, if you have seen people who have loved and invested in you and you have turned against them or turned against their advice out of some misguided perception that they are trying to do you wrong, get that right. And then approach their advice. And maybe they're still wrong in their advice but at least approach it from the perspective in which it is sent. A place of love from those who have historically shown to you the marks of their love for you. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I pray for God's people, and I ask that this message would be received within the spirit that it was intended, that, um, that in this room and among these men, women, and children, the hearts of God's people would be protected from this propensity in the human heart to reject the love of those who love them the most through some misguided understanding of motivations. Help us to be a people who love one another enough to tell the truth, not to judge and not to belittle and not to um, attack, but truly to love one another as you have loved us so that we can be a people who both in, in output and in reception are surrounded by love, surrounded by grace, surrounded by holiness, unto the end that we might be a reflection of you, a church which is, edifies itself unto the increasing of itself in love. Through the strength that every joint supplies. May this be us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.